Hey guys, Eddie here. Just wanted to give you a warning that we had some audio problems at the beginning of this episode. There was a major hailstorm going on at my house while we were recording. Uh, it gets better as the storm blew over, but just want to make sure you understood what that crazy background noise was at the beginning. Thanks. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 25 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my internet-renowned co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, I have to make a concession speech. Congratulations on beating <laughs> me to 10,000. Well, thank you. Uh, it was kind of a surprise to look and see that number get an extra digit a couple of, couple of days ago. but um, It's been a long time kind of, coming. <laughs> yeah, it's great just to know that, you know, that what I'm doing out here has at least a little bit of a, of a following, um, it's humbling in a way, but, um, but you know, I, you know, my philosophy on, on follower count, right? The more followers I have, the better advice I get because the, the bigger audience I can reach out to, right? For advice and, uh, machining tips and that kind of stuff. So it's always great to see that number grow. Yeah. And I guess we should also welcome our third chair to the table. Uh, Chris Lee joining us again for the third time. Hey, how's it going? Uh, I didn't want to congratulate you yet until uh, it was known that I was here. But yeah, congrats, man. That's like a huge oh, thanks, milestone, uh, especially for the Instagram thing. You don't even have a YouTube channel, but your Instagram following is super strong. So the way I look at it, it's yeah. it's kind of crazy. You've got like a quarter of the Instagram clout that John Saunders does. You don't even have a YouTube channel. <laughs> well, I think I mean both those guys are probably much more focused on YouTube, right? And all the other stuff they're doing, but as far as social media, yeah, they're, they're both pretty huge on YouTube. Yeah, but you figure like if they have like diehard fans and whatnot, like a lot of them would funnel to Instagram. And so, I mean, it's still a pretty good metric of, of sort of how interesting you are to the general population. Yeah, I'm glad that, that you know, my audience is happy with Instagram because it's like for me, it's much easier to keep stuff coming on Instagram, then it would be, you know, eventually, like I said, I'll have YouTube, but, uh, it's just like the, the barrier to getting a post up is so much easier on Instagram, right? I, I know I, I, I can usually get something at least once a day up and, um, I don't know that, that to me is like as a participant in Instagram is, you know, somebody who follows a lot of people too. That's what I like about it. Like I like, it's always kind of something fresh going on. Um, in the instant machinist community, I get my daily fix <laughs> um, without like a too large a commitment of time, right? Both as a content creator and as a consumer of it. So that's like I'm, I'm an Instagram guy, right? Yeah, both as consumer and producer. Um, eventually, I might be YouTube. Uh, I got a lot of respect for you guys that do YouTube because it looks like it's you know a much higher barrier to entry um, and time commitment versus Instagram. Almost feel like I'm cheating sometimes. It's definitely sort of a, a delayed gratification because you have to put so much more effort into it before you actually get a finished product and before you get feedback. Yeah, it's like a totally, it's like learning a whole new set of skills. You know, like I, I've already edited maybe two videos right now and I actually showed Winston one of them, but you know, I didn't like the way it turned out. And it just made me realize like, I'm not going to be able to kind of just 
do what I do on Instagram and, you know, set up a photo, take a picture to a video, I'm going to have to sit there and learn this skill. I need to kind of get an eye for how to edit a video, shoot it in a certain way that I want and kind of get everything the way to look the way that I want. And that's going to be the hardest part because um, trying to balance that with doing everything else at the same time, kind of hard. Yeah, I think with YouTube, you know, you kind of have to develop your style or your, you know, just the way you, you come across and your, your content comes across, right? It's, it takes a lot more, uh, I don't say effort, but a lot more thought, right? To kind of get your personal uh, visual and, and audio style, yes. right? Yeah, kind of absolutely. Worked out and consistent from video to video. Um, and Instagram's kind of a little bit more haphazard, for, at least for me. So I, I like that I can just take a picture, you know, kind of put some thoughts about it in the caption and off I go. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's just going to be one of those things. I'm not. I'm not going to give up yet. I'm just got to keep persevering through all that and trying to figure out, um, you know, how to get good at it. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, I know. I think like Winston. I don't want to speak for you, but I think you know, you're you're focused on kind of content creation, and you happen to do it through a machining, CNC, and digital fabrication. Uh, lens, right? Uh, I suppose that's accurate. I really don't quite know which way I come at it from. Um, On the one hand, I really enjoy YouTube because it's something of a a storytelling medium, Um, but it's also a good way to teach people because you can invest a lot more time into it, put a lot more information into it. Um, I I still feel like I have this mixed relationship with Instagram um, where I feel like I'm following too many people to really develop a meaningful um, dialogue with any single person. Um, Like I I have so many messages that I can't really keep track of conversations. So if I respond and and someone responds back and I, I I lose track of like my, my inbox queue of like which conversation was I just on? Um, Yeah. And like in that regard, like, YouTube, you can't really have a one-on-one conversation because it's just everything's in the comments. On Instagram, you can because individuals can come and engage with you. But I, like, I don't feel like I have the same quality of uh, like that relationship where I feel like I, I've put my heart and soul into YouTube, and I, I'm proud of like what comes out of it and the feedback that comes back from it is great. Um, the, the one-on-one conversations that I have on Instagram are great, but I don't know if my content, like, if I care about it nearly as much. Um, Instagram, to me, sort of feels just like a quick way to, to plug some gaps in, in my upload schedule to just put out a little more content, but it doesn't feel as, as substantial to me. Um, so, I don't know. Uh, how, do, how do you look at, well, I mean, you only have Instagram, Eddie, but, like, um, what, what sort of motivates you and, like, where do you what do you hope to get out of it? I think, um, you get, you know, I think my motives are more selfish <laughs> than, than anything. Cause, um, you know, I keep getting rewarded by, uh, you know, I post, I get followers. Those followers, a lot of times are better machinists than I am. Um, I get advice and feedback that kind of grows out of that follower relationship. And a lot of times it's mutual, right? Like I'm following them, they're following me. Um, I, I grow just from watching what they're posting. And then a lot of times it's kind of one-on-one feedback, like you said, or a tip in the comment. Um, and almost all that stuff's like on the money for me. Um, 
makes me a better machinist. Cause I, like I said, I came into this knowing nothing about CNC and machining. Um, and didn't really get on Instagram because I thought I would learn more. I didn't know that was like, that wasn't why I was doing that. That was kind of an un, unexpected, uh, benefit. <laughs> so, but that's kind of turned out to be my main driver now. It's like, um, I mean, plus I enjoy, I enjoy manufacturing and I enjoy, um, CNC machining, small machines, big machines, you know, even stuff I know I'd never touch. I love seeing those people using that machine or using, um, kind of any range of machine, right? It's just kind of the stuff I like, I'm interested in like following, um, both for entertainment and educational reasons. So that's kind of what I get out of Instagram. Uh, you know, I've always kind of wondered what my followers get out of what I post, but, uh, cause I don't really do much educational stuff. I try to post like speeds and feeds and, and, you know, small, small data points like that, but I'm not doing kind of comprehensive tutorial, uh, length content, right? You just can't really do that on Instagram anyway. Um, so it's always kind of been surprising to me that the follower count has been kind of regularly growing, very happy about it, but still don't really understand. It's a bit of a mystery as to why that happens, but, um, I don't know if that answered your question, but. I don't really have like a social media strategy and probably never will. It's just, I'll keep doing what I'm doing as long as it's, you know, as long as I'm enjoying it um, and I'll share as much as I can. I think um, I don't really have a strategy, but I do have like a, a goal of someday having something up on YouTube. Don't know exactly what it's going to look like yet. Um, but I'm again, I'm going to, you know, that's not going to come at the expense of actual like shop time. Um, Cause it's to me, that's the secondary thing. Like I'll do what I do with the machines. And if I have time to film it and talk about it, then I will, but I'm not going to like compromise too much on like uh, machining time or not machine time, but shop time, right. To, to concentrate on, on video editing, that kind of stuff. At least not now. I don't have the luxury. Um, maybe, you know, down the road when I don't have a full time job in the day that that'll change. But right now I just kind of, allocate what little spare time I have to getting better on the, on the CNC machines and, and CAD and cam and sharing, you know, small bits right through Instagram. That seems to be working for me right now. That's fair. What about you, Chris? What's your relationship? You know, I started Instagram just to have a place to kind of put all the things that I'm doing. Cause I didn't really uh, want to start like a blog or a website. Um, and at first it was just me taking pictures of kind of random stuff. And then it started developing into, uh, when I got the Nomad, that's when I was like, okay, I'm going to kind of, uh, take a screen, a time capsule shot of everything that I've done. And after the year I went back through everything and it kind of made me realize like how much I've grown in this, in this one year since I've got the Nomad. And, you know, then I got the pocket and see and my and Instagram's kind of turned into from being a personal blog into a business venture because now I'm getting work. I'm getting client work. People are discovering me on Instagram through the things that I've shown and they want me to make things for them. And I, you know, it's, it's crazy. Like that I, something that I was doing just for fun is all of a now sudden like paying the bills and, and giving me more opportunities to become a better machinist, to be a better business person, to kind of grow in the manufacturing world. And all this because I decided to take pictures of stuff that I do. And it's kind of mind blowing. That's a pretty cool start of the journey. Do you like, is there an end goal for you? Like, is there some point social media wise, like where you would be happy? Like, Oh, I hit like 10,000 followers or is this sort of really tied to your career? Like as you gain more experience, as you 
get more interesting jobs as you develop like more capability in your shop like let's say you get a bigger cnc is instagram going to grow with your ambitions or do you sort of decouple the social media aspect of it with your personal career and like emotional satisfaction i think instagram and social media is definitely going to grow with me i'm not going to kind of decouple from it if i were to get bigger in the shop or anything because it's kind of part of the story now you know like if it wasn't for instagram i would have never had met you guys i would never have gotten a chance to get a pocket and see and all these things wouldn't have happened and if it wasn't for instagram so i think it would be not fair to just all of a sudden if i got quote unquote big to like run away from it it's like it's a part of me now and i think i'm going to continue that even if i start to grow i i definitely don't look at the numbers i because I, as soon as you do it's like a totally stress-inducing event right like it's like just yep. setting up goals <laughs> like oh i only got this many followers today i didn't get this it's like no i, I don't really care about that i i just post what i want to post i try to keep the post to be somewhat what i think is going to value f- for people like to help them out but I try not to worry about the the statistics of everything and I'm just doing it because I want to do it and to kind of chronicle my journey, right? For me, it's just more about being able to go back to this platform and look at where I was and look at where I am now so that I can remind myself that, hey, I'm doing a good job. Like I'm moving through this good, like, or I'm, I'm, I'm working hard enough to, you know, to get to where I want to be. And for me, that kind of metric is, is all I need. I don't really care too much about like the other stuff. Yeah, no, that's, that's fair. When I saw Eddie hit 10,000, and I think he also just left the call, um, I don't know if, I hope he managed to save his audio somehow, and assuming he does, and we're able to make a podcast out of this, um, the viewer should know that the the noise that sounded like a bunch of angry dogs behind him uh, was actually a hailstorm, so I'm assuming he lost power. Anyway, uh, when he like hit 10,000, I sort of looked at my own um, Instagram page, and I was like, yeah, I'm like just barely scraping at 7,000 and that's a cool number and all. Uh, but I, I honestly don't think I care about the follower count. It's more about the, the quality of engagement for me and just having that outlet to, to just throw content out there. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, and that's, don't, I feel like don't get caught up in that stuff. Like it, it, let's say you're new and you're listening to this podcast and you're not sure about doing the Instagram thing. Totally do it. Just start with something. Eventually you're going to develop a style and a taste for what it is that you want to share and just stick with it. Don't, don't stress out about like, Oh, I got to get this many likes or this, like forget all that stuff. That stuff doesn't matter. The more passionate you are about something that you're sharing, your following will find you. And if you just stick with it over time, it'll happen. I mean, just, you can look through mine and I, I started with nothing and got all this that I have now. It's just, just do what you love. If you, if you're passionate about something, all that good stuff will come after that because people usually cling to people who are passionate because they also believe in what you're doing. And I think that's what's most important about social media. And it's got to be like an authentic reflection of sort of what you stand for. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you don't want to be trying to, if you're trying to fake it and, you know, people can tell, you know, it, being genuine is very important online because there's a lot of non-genuine outlets out there. So I think being true to yourself and just doing what you believe in, people can feed off of that. I mean, look at John Grunzo. You know, this guy is genuine. He loves what he does. He he loves that whole industry and that field and knives. You can tell from his enthusiasm. And that's not something, that's something that's very difficult to fake. And I think that's what draws a lot of people to him is because that's such a, 
it's just charismatic in a way, you know, like you can't help but want to like know more about him, support him, be there and be a part of that journey. So, yeah, I think just being yourself and keep doing something, even if sometimes it doesn't look like it's getting to where you want to be, that that don't let it discourage you. Just kind of keep on going. Yeah. So let's say, let's say five years from now, um, what do you, what do you want people to, to sort of look at your, um, Instagram and presumably YouTube channel as like, what's, I don't want to say legacy because it's not like you're going away, but what do you want people to come to your, um, pages for? I think for me, I, I would like to eventually have my own products to sell and kind of use the social media as a way to market that. And I want to like bring people along for the journey as I create these products. So let's say in five years, I would like to have one or two products that are finished and out there selling on a website and going. And I want people to be able to come to my channel to see how I make these things, kind of like my thought process, you know, how meticulous I am and how much like thought I do put into these designs. Cause I spend a lot of time designing something, you know, even if it doesn't look that complicated, I do sit there for hours pretty much diving in on YouTube and Google and researching and going through every kind of aspect of why I'd want something to be there or why I wouldn't want something to be there. Is there something better, you know, mechanisms, like all sorts of things. So like I spend hours on hours just kind of losing myself in that rabbit hole of Googling and, I think, I hope people would appreciate that. You know, people do enjoy that kind of thing. That's kind of what I want to kind of show is I care a lot about the things that I put out and my reputation is important. Um, I always try to do the best that I can, even in the client work and non-client work. And I don't like to make bad things. So I try my best to make good things, you know, and, and things that I can be proud of and that people will be proud of to have my things with them if that makes sense kind of like if they were to buy my product to be proud to show them off it sounds like for now instagram's just sort of a a reflection of your journey but once you develop your own identity that's sort of what'll be core to uh your your brand yes yes it'll it'll definitely i think it'll definitely help i mean we we've already seen all these youtube people you know that are much more famous like the kind of things that they do and i i think if you let people into your journey, I think that's what gets people to kind of latch on to your brand because they not only kind of know you, but they kind of know what you're about and the things that you make. And that's how you find your audience. And I think that's what the power of social media is really about is having a platform to find your audience. You know, don't, don't try to go look for that, you know, million subscription thing. Just, just find the people out there that are just like you. Cause you'd be surprised at how many people are just like you out there. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That your, your intentions are a lot more thought out than mine. Um, Cause as far as I can project forward, the only takeaway I want people to have is to sort of appreciate and, get interested in cnc um like i just keep trying to showcase like new techniques and and whatnot but it's that's about all there is to it there's there's no like deep strategy behind it it's just put out stuff to get people interested um and for me that's that's good enough yeah and you're doing a great job i mean you got you got me into it with the shipoko like that was the reason why we bought the shipoko in the first place um and then you know 
because we liked the Shiboko, I ended up getting the Nomad and, and all that happened. But I mean, you know, you think of all the videos that you're making, I don't see anyone else making them for the hobby, you know, machinists or helping new people kind of dive into this complicated world of like CAD and, and, and CAM and toolpaths and stuff. So, I mean, you, you know this, when you go to Maker Fair, you know, I was following you around, you have people coming up to you like every few minutes, like to thank you for what you're doing. So I, I think whatever you're doing, you're doing a great job and you, you just keep doing you. You don't need to worry about much. Yeah, honestly, like that feedback, if like one person a month just comes to me and tells me that like they got into CNC, they got a job because of it, or they're they're going into an engineering program, that is like all the gratification I could need. And uh, like I, I really like my videos could flop, but I would be happy um, just to have that kind of impact in people's lives. Um, have we been rejoined by Eddie? Yeah, I had a, we have a storm going on here and uh, been losing power kind of all evening. Um, we just went through that a minute ago. I'm back. Hopefully I have good audio f- up to this point. We'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so Chris, you had uh, gave us a pretty good segue. Um, that experience we had at Maker Fair was, um, it was really cool to be a part of that community. And, uh, Last week, we got news that uh, Maker Media has uh, entered some financial trouble, so to speak. I think the term was insolvent, not quite technically bankrupt, but they're in a bit of a death spiral. Hmm. And uh, it makes me wonder what that means for the community, um, because you've got anecdotes all over the place, like Tech Shop went down, some other Maker maker, uh, space is doing well, so... There are winners, there are losers, but I don't know. I can't see a trend, and I don't know how I should feel about our community. Should I be optimistic? What's what's going to replace this void? And what is it that's actually being lost? Is it Maker Fair itself, or, or the, the Make Magazine, Make Online? I guess is it everything? I, I haven't caught up uh, fully with the that story. I believe um, their intentions are to salvage and preserve as much of the archives as they can, but I don't know to what extent Make can support the community. I think they're still going to try and license out the Maker Fairs, like the smaller ones around the country, but I can't see them putting on big flagship fairs in New York and um, the Bay Area anymore. And uh, I mean, for me, those were just the best times to, to meet up with all the other content creators and makers that you've met on the internet, but never see in real life. And that's sort of, um, we can sort of be uh, quite isolated in what we do, because what we do is on the internet. Um, We don't interact with a lot of people unless you live near someone else. And I just, I really enjoyed getting FaceTime with other people. And that's what I'm most afraid to lose. Yeah, it's kind of, um, I hope even if make media disappears, you know, I I hope, somehow as a community, we can still kind of figure out a way to meet like once a year or something. Cause you know, this, this was my first maker fair that just happened and I hope it's not the last, like it was, it was definitely an eye-opening experience. It's inspirational. Um, it was really fun to just walk around and look at stuff. I'm sad that they weren't, you know, as a business, it kind of failed. And I, I, I hope that there's a way that the makers can kind of get together to do something, whether that's, you know, if they do keep maker fairs going, do they have to increase the price? Like, is that, is that all that really was, or do they need to find 
uh, a better way to get corporate sponsorship or, you know, I don't know the details of behind the scenes and stuff, but w- I hope that that comes back in some way or form, whether it's Maker Faire or not, it may not be, but, you know, as long as we're getting together at some place and having fun, I think that's, that's, that's where the heart of, of all this is anyways. It's not Maker Faire, quote unquote. I was just going to say, you know, I've never been to a Maker Faire, so, you know, on one hand, I'm kind of, I guess I won't get to, which is sad. <laughs> but the, you know, the flip side is it hasn't made a big impact on what I do so far. So well, it remains to be seen if I'll miss it. Right. Um, I mean, I think the the best way for you to sort of like the, the analogy for you would be like, imagine if Autodesk University went away. Um, like, don't look at it from the commercial standpoint of like uh, all the companies that were there, but the people yeah. you got to talk to and, and meet face to face. If yeah, that yeah. That's the insta-machinist um, analogy to Maker Fair. Yeah, I'd say as an experience, um, losing that is probably like the biggest blow. I would feel the same way, like if I didn't have uh, you know some outlet where we could actually meet a lot of the people that I interact with online, meet them face to face, which for me yeah, is typically like an Autodesk event or a trade show like IMTS or Emo. But um, yeah, I mean, it's I don't know what the bigger message is of you know, someone as prominent as Make Magazine or Make Enterprise, right? Um, not being able to make a living doing this. I'm not quite sure what to take away from that. Um, you know, it might be that it's just a very difficult experience to monetize, right? The maker experience. And I think making is going to go on one way or the other, whether it makes around or um, any of the other kind of big companies that are involved in that space. But they contributed quite a bit. I mean, I was a big fan of their written publication and blogs and stuff like that. I got a lot out of that. So, um, yeah, I don't know who's going to fill those shoes. I mean, it's it's definitely possible to host events that bring people together. Um, the problem is they all tend to be very commercial in nature. Like, if you look at uh, WorkbenchCon, SpringMake, those are all companies that are trying to specifically court people um, who are brought to these events. And... It, that's it's just if you tried to like just bring more companies into Maker Faire, I don't know if it'd have the same vibe. Like you look at the uh, the Power Wheels racing thing, like you get a bunch of people who who want to hack uh, kids' toys and and just spruce them up with like lipos and beefier engines. That's really cool and fun. But I bet you the the revenue per square foot of that area that they set aside was like way in the red. So. Those things that sort of just inspire joy aren't money makers, and that's kind of a problem. And I was thinking of like, well, what for me is the biggest draw of Maker Fair, and for me it was the people. And then I was like, what other events are specifically designed to bring people together? And then I became very disgusted because I thought of VidCon, which tends to just be a, a, a fan fest that I, that's not an experience I want to recreate. So I don't really know how we how people can put together an event that is on sound financial footing, but is also like its core value is to bring people together in a way to, to celebrate diversity and, and sort of not do it in a way that's selling out. Yeah. Without becoming a crassly commercial, right? I, um, I feel like the only way to succeed at this is that it needs to be community supported. 
right? That's the only way to keep these corporate stuff out of it and to keep it solely based on the experience of the makers meeting makers. But that means that the makers need to step up and support it. You know, you can't, the reason why Maker Fair may not have succeeded is because it had to balance act between the two. Like you said, they want these cool racetracks for people to spruce up cars and race, but it goes in the red, it doesn't make the money. So then they have to bring in companies to rent out booths to kind of counter that. And I, I, I don't know for sure, but I had to guess it probably wasn't balanced good enough. And, you know, you do this too many times and it's such a big event. I'd probably spend a lot of money and stuff, but I, I feel like makers are going to have to step up if this is something that they want and they're going to have to help out in a way, whether that's paying for more for a ticket price or doing more to make this a possibility. But everyone's going to have to pitch in if they want to keep it from becoming like a VidCon or you know, a Workbench Con or something like that. But that's what I think. Yeah, my yeah. my take is I'm happy to see you know kind of the maker supporting companies, uh, corporations at events like you know again I haven't been to Maker Fair but um, but like the like Autodesk or any of the kind of more CAD CAM focused big conferences you know it's I like seeing kind of the vendor hall where you see the solutions and products and people that um, are kind of also contributing and, you know because what I do I couldn't do if there wasn't the right software and the right machines out there, right? At a price point that I could, that was accessible to me. So I'm, I'm a big fan of those guys. I think those kind of companies do a lot to support the community. You know, it's not necessarily for altruistic reasons, but um, there's a balance there. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say I don't, I want something with no corporate sponsorship. I think that's important. But yeah, I mean, you want it to not necessarily, you know, you're either like full trade show where it's all about selling or it's something a little more, um, kind of focused on what the community is doing, which, you know, Maker Fair probably went the opposite direction, was kind of all focused about, you know, all focused on Maker, which sounds really cool. Um, but hopefully there's there's room somewhere for something to fill that gap, right, if, if Maker Fair really is dead. So given the sort of the, the void that's left, are individuals like us going to be the ones that, that keep pushing the community forward? I... Don't think so. Not for something like a maker fair. I mean, you're going to have to have at least somebody with deep pockets, some corporate organizer, right, to, for that I mean, to get off the of ground. It's too what maker too central was right. Yeah, um, you know, maybe there's room for a different different company to come in. Um, I mean, it probably won't be the same kind of event. You know, you can, I don't think you're going to ever be able to recreate maker fair it's coming at it from different organizer, right? But um, yeah. But from the standpoint of like, who's going to promote STEM or the maker movement? Because there was the the White House Maker Fair, which was pretty pretty groundbreaking for um, sort of the maker community to to be on the forefront, like front and center in DC for a day or two. Who else is going to push that agenda? Yeah, that's a good question. I think you know my like, first thought is. Does the maker community actually need something like Maker Fair, or is it kind That's of like I said, is it self sufficient at this point? Because I think you know the phenomena seems to be growing, and we probably all have different definitions of maker. Um, but at least like the stuff I'm focused on, digital fabrication, um, you know, basically either making things at home or in, in maker spaces uh, seems to be doing pretty well. I don't know if you can make you know money like. Uh, was it tech space? Who am I thinking of? The commercial tech shop. Yeah, tech shop. You know, it may not, it may not be a uh, 
good business model to stand up makerspaces, but I think you know, if they have the right community support, they seem to be doing okay in certain certain locations. Um, I'm hoping it's not the, the failure of make is not a f- reflective of kind of a decline in interest in digital fabrication, making electronics, hacking, all that stuff. I don't see any sign that it is, but that would be my, my first concern is, is this like the early, early warning about things changing in that, you know, worst case would be like companies like Autodesk get less interested in supporting Fusion 360, right? That's kind of the worst case scenario. Um, less options for say under $10,000 CNC machines that are, that are within reach of a home user. You know, hopefully I haven't seen any evidence of that and hopefully that's not what it's, what it's going to be leading us towards. Right. To, to paraphrase Elon though, I mean, to play devil's advocate, um, he said that SpaceX will have succeeded when their launches are no longer a big deal anymore. That for it to become routine means that they've made it. And in some ways you could view it as when people don't need to champion the maker movement, maybe that means it's mainstream enough. Maybe that means it'll actually be okay on its own. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't quite think we're there yet. I don't know what your view of it, Chris, is, but like in California... I see a lot of schools and and communities doing some sort of makery type thing, but I don't know if that's that's actually that prevalent across the country. Yeah, I you know I have a lot of uh, I know like nieces and nephews of coworkers and friends and stuff like that. I'm always curious like what they're learning in school and they're like teaching them coding and game design now, visual graphics and stuff. And most places, I, my high school didn't even have a shop anymore. And that was back in you know the 2000s and stuff. So I can only imagine by now, all that stuff is probably gone, you know, especially in California that I know of. Um, I, I don't think if Maker Faire disappearing is going to stop the movement. I think, you know, the things that drive it are YouTube, the people on YouTube, Instagram, that kind of thing. Because there's always going to be a fascination, right, with how to make something. And especially for me, like my whole life, I basically went without ever being exposed to this. And then like two years ago, kind of got exposed to me and then I just got lost in it. So I think as long as YouTube is around and Instagram and people can kind of stumble on it somehow, it'll make them find their way into how to get into this. Um, and Maker Fair to me was I only wanted to go there after the fact that I knew what was going on, like who the people were there and stuff. I'm not sure if I would know to go to Maker Faire if I didn't have any background at all. So I'm kind of curious, like how many people show up there just thinking it's like an Orange County Fair and they're just there for fun or how many people are there because there's somewhat of a purpose, right? Either to network or meet somebody or et cetera, et cetera. So I think regardless, we will survive, quote unquote, (laughs) as a maker, but how it kind of materializes might be interesting if it changes, but I guess time will tell. Um, like I said, I don't know that the schools are, are teaching shop anymore, you know, whether it's woodworking or metalworking, you know, welding and all this stuff, fabricating. I don't think they're going in that route. I think they're more turning toward software and coding and stuff, app development. I think that's kind of like their main focus because they think that's what the future is. So it, it'll definitely be interesting to see what happens in the next you know, five to 10 years as far as job market and uh, growth and what the kids come out trying to learn. Yeah, I think from like a high school perspective, a school district perspective, STEM basically is coding and medical careers, right? That's the where the bulk of the funding seems to go. You don't see all that much in manufacturing, although I see signs that that's changing in, in certain locations. 
um, especially where schools have partnered with uh, kind of manufacturing oriented businesses and they're kind of um, helping the schools fund uh, you know more of a modern approach to uh, training a workforce right preparing them for a manufacturing career with or without college uh, either the skilled trades or you know engineering track right um, that seems to be a trend that's growing which is good from my perspective but uh, stem to most people probably means coder right software developer or medical career right at least in my my town that seems to be the the main focus on stem spending like there's a lot of specialty schools for medical career oriented students and um you know i'm pretty sure there's like some software related high school curricula quite a bit here yeah so i guess it's it's up to us to to keep pushing <laughs> the digital fabrication agenda so it's going to be uh Winston Moyes Maker Fair 2020. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, don't don't put it past me. I, I, you know, we might just start uh, Carbide Con. Oh yeah, that'd be interesting. Like it, it wouldn't Stepper Fest. It, it wouldn't take much. <laughs> you know, it, it wouldn't take much at all. It's just like a venue, some you know, some food and bathroom, and then hey, yeah. everyone come on down. I'm pretty sure you'd have a pretty great turnout. Yeah, even if you, I mean, some of the, you know, it seems like a lot of these communities, they start with just a plan to meet up at some other event, right? And that's kind of how those things, like a tradition starts, right? At some conference and next thing you know, that's like the kind of after conference stuff is, or the informal stuff that's not on the schedule is actually the big draw, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that yeah. even like, you know, I'm, I'm in the software industry and our, our trade shows for software developers are very much like that, like the... The high value stuff's not necessarily what's on the agenda. It's the birds of a feather sessions at night, you know, when the beer's flowing and the <laughs> and the thoughts are flowing, right? Those are like some of the best takeaways from conferences past for me. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. I think, you know, the spirit of it's gonna live on somehow, somewhere, um, if there's enough motivated people, if people will get enough out of it, right? Um, to figure out a solution or not a solution, but a, an alternative. Just may take a few years to figure out what that is and and be a part of it, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. who knows? In five years, we all might just plop on a VR set and meet in downtown LA, like within a second, <laughs> and connect with the world, yeah. right? Like, who knows what the kind yeah. of technology is going to come out that might be able to make it even easier for us to connect? Like, can you imagine a world where uh, Winston's trying to teach a class about doing something on Shapeoko, and everybody can connect through a VR set and physically watch him do it. And like, you can be there next to him standing there and you can also participate in it as well. Like that's a pretty insane thing. And yet we're not that far off. I mean, we have self-driving cars pretty much. So I feel like we're on the, you know, the precipice of some amazing. That's the future. But looking back, like I'm going to miss make because that was the first time I'd ever even heard that word. You know, I kind of knew I was late to the, you know, I'm sure they've been publishing for years before I ever ran across them. But, um, like I wasn't familiar with that term maker. I, I knew what this, the work behind what a maker does is. I just didn't know it had a word to kind of roll it all up <laughs> into, uh, yeah, like there's never yeah. a good clean way to put your finger on it. Like we had woodworkers, we Tinker. had like, builders and <laughs> yeah. coders, but there was no umbrella for everyone to, to stand under. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't quite reach to craftsmen, right? For a lot of those. I mean, you didn't have to be good enough to be a craftsman to be into making. Eventually, you might, you might get there. 
Um, but it wasn't the barrier, you know, it wasn't supposed to be a barrier to entry if you didn't necessarily have those skills right away. Right. It's, it was pretty open. That was the nice thing about it. It was, it's an open community, try whatever you want. If it works, it doesn't work, share it. Everyone's going to be interested in it or some, some audience will be right for just about anything you, you make. And I'm still running across stuff like there's communities out there, um, that would consider themselves makers doing things that like I would never try, but it's just kind of neat to know there's a community developing around it. Um, like I see a lot of, I don't know what you'd even call it. Some, I guess it would be like jewelry or stuff you wear, like wearable <laughs> and, uh, you know, some pretty creative stuff going on there. You see it on Instagram every once in a while and they have a whole community around it. And, um, and they're, you know, they're basically applying a craft and they're teaching each other, sharing skills. It's just, I think that's going to continue. Um, but I think make magazine, you know, we owe them a, a, some gratitude for getting to me, getting it started. Right. And form or at least formally recognizing it and encouraging it to grow. So thank you, make magazine and definitely going to miss them. Amen. So speaking of making, give us an update on your V 250 Chris, how's it going? I, I saw you, you've got it running now and cranking out. I couldn't tell you were still kind of, the early stages of machining on something that looked like a figurine or figurehead or a head, uh, like a bust of something. I couldn't tell what it was. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I told myself I would stop making useless stuff, but I couldn't help it. I, I ended up making a stormtrooper helmet cause I kind of always wanted one and I wanted to, I, I'm not done yet with testing like surface finishes on the machine. And I wanted like 3d surfaces. Like I don't, I don't want to make boxes anymore. I want to do like contours and curves and stuff and try to figure out how to like get the ball end mill to cut on the side at the angle that I want and to control that tool path all along, like, like a professional would, but doing it in fusion. So I use that stormtrooper helmet to really buckle down and to finalize like uh, feeds and speeds like step overs and toolpath strategies and using you know the actual forward angle side angle the fan uh, distance for the multi-axis toolpaths and stuff and really diving into like what these options actually are because a lot of times like uh, when I'm trying to do something I don't remember so I have a little little cheat sheet that I remind myself with pictures and I'm like okay if I want the angle to go in this direction I change this you know, uh, forward angle to 10 degrees and it'll go that way. So I'm, I just really try to buckle down, even though the stormtrooper thing was kind of simple, I tried to make it more complicated by learning the ins and outs of that because, you know, in Fusion, we only have three multi-axis toolpaths. We have, we have Swarf, multi-axis contour, and we have flow. So really trying to get really, really good at those three because that's all we have is my goal. And the Stormtrooper was just kind of a way for me to get in there and kind of do that. So I learned quite a bit on that. Um, I didn't get to finish the bust underneath the Stormtrooper helmet because I have a client job that I wanted to get started on. So I'm currently working on uh, something for somebody in Australia out of Delrin. So that's kind of what I've been doing this last weekend. And um, I can't share what it is. Actually, he gave me permission to show pictures. I just can't say what it is. So I might be able to share yeah. some of the video. Yeah. So a uh, couple of thoughts. One is, yeah, there's three multi-axis strategies in Fusion today. I think that's going to get better this summer so oh that'd be so that. cool that'd be so cool <laughs> yeah and it and the other thing is wow you jumped right into multi-axis like the first week you had the machine that's pretty impressive it took me a while before i ran other than like the tutorial that was in uh pocket nc's pdf library I, I didn't really play around with the multi-axis stuff for probably a few months until 
I was kind of comfortable with the machine. So that's kind of cool. Like you're going to, you're going to adapt to that machine really quickly. I think. Yeah. Like, you know, that's the whole reason why you want five axis is you want to be able to do, you know, all that, you know, all the videos that we see on Instagram where the, the table's like spinning like a madman and the ball's just going in like the circle. Like I want to do that so bad. So I'm trying to figure out how to imitate that on our hobby machine. So I do have a lot of qualms with some of the stuff that's on there. You know, like I don't understand why the flow tool path doesn't allow us to set a step over, but I have to tell it how many steps. So I'm not sure how that, like, you know, it would. Yeah, you gotta do a little math on that why, one. <laughs> why, like, why can't I just tell it to do a step over like everything else? I'm not sure how I'm supposed to figure out a hundred steps between this distance. But like you said, if it comes out in the summer and it's, we got more stuff to play with, that's super cool. Cause when you look at other cam packages, like there's some crazy stuff in there that make multi-axis really fun, you know? So I, I'm hoping that that'll come out um, soon. That way I can dive into that as well. That'd be really cool. I mean, some of this is going to be additional cost modules that you'd have to, you know, if you want that particular strategy, you might have to subscribe additionally to it or an extra subscription, right. To get it for the year or for the month or whatever they're going to, whatever terms they'll be doing. But, um, so it's going to be a little bit of a cafeteria plan for some of the, the more high end features. I, I don't know, um, if this is a fact, but I think this stuff's like, you're starting to see, you'll probably start seeing features that were already in, um, the power suite, like the Dell cam stuff. Um, coming into fusion at least initially through that mechanism um, you know, sounds good to me it sounds like a good way to to keep funding development of, of fusion 360 uh, so some of the stuff that's coming in is stuff that like people like me you and winston wouldn't need and wouldn't necessarily want to pay for or have slow down development in fusion because i think they're going to be you know, some features are probably just for big shops and that's fine if i don't necessarily you know want it or need it um it's fine to kind of have that take it or don't take it as long as I'd like to think like at some point that stuff's going to get rolled into base fusion. I don't know if it will, but you know, basically maybe become subscription for a while. Then eventually it's a base feature. Right. And they move on to, to the next thing, right. To yeah. bring into fusion. So, I mean, if, um, if they can make it affordable cause they're giving out fusion to hobbyists, right. And they're letting us use it for free. And that's super cool. Like I might, I really appreciate that, but you know, when you, tr when you look at, I just, what I would hate is like, okay, Hey, we have all these new multi-axis stuff and you have to pay for it. Hey, I'm willing to pay for it, but like, come on, like, you know, some of these camp packages are like five, 10 grand a seat or, you know, on, on even crazier levels, like 30 to 50 grand. So if it's somewhat like a subscription base, that's affordable, I would totally pay for it. You know, a couple hundred bucks. Sure. Why not? But when you start getting into like the thousands, it gets harder for like a hobbyist to kind of commit to that. Right. Cause uh, it's just kind of like for that money, you could buy a machine or you could buy something else to help you do, you know, whatever. So I don't know. It's like kind of a fine line between how much can you charge, how much people are willing to spend and stuff. But if they can find a way to strike yeah. that balance subscription, you know, like Adobe Creative Suite, I pay, I don't know how much a month and I get access to everything and I stay subscribed because I'm, it's cool. I can use anything that I want. It's always updated. So I don't know if they come up with something like that, that'd be cool. But if they start charging like thousands of dollars just to have a couple more multi-access toolpaths, then maybe it's not worth it to use Fusion anymore. You know, if you, if you really need like the five axis stuff, maybe it's time to jump to something else. Yeah. I'm hoping it's, you know, going to be scaled to the, the price of a full Fusion annual subscription right some fraction of that um 
I would like to think that sets the upper bound for how expensive a particular individual module in Fusion could be, but who knows? You know, I have no insight into their pricing, but um, I think we'll know soon enough. Hopefully, I think that stuff's kind of already out in beta uh, here and there, so hopefully we'll we'll know more soon um, and find something that we can use. Right? I hope that hope there's features in there that work for us. Um, yeah. So anyway, um, so what else you got planned? So uh, you've got the commercial work you're doing you got any uh, personal projects already lined up for the v250 uh so i have i've been making a self-centering vice for the pocket nc and i'm almost done with that i think as soon as i'm done with this client project i'll be able to put it on there and test it out um so i made like a uh, i made the clamp vices out of tool steel uh 775 for the base and i did a reverse thread left and right on a rod to do this whole contraption thing. So I'm really looking forward to testing that out and basically trying to just bolt on stock really quickly. Um, after I get that vice set up, I might take a stab at a tombstone fixture setup. I have a couple ideas to try and see if that'll work. Um, and then as far as like projects to make, like I want to make an X-Wing and I want to make a Formula One car. Like I want to do stuff that you cannot do on a three axis. And if I can make like an X-Wing out of one block of aluminum, that'd be pretty, pretty awesome. So those are the kind of things that I'm looking forward to getting into to really push the limits of my knowledge of fusion and multi-axis toolpaths. If, if I can do that kind of stuff, I'd be pretty happy. Well, that'd be sweet. Cause there's already been a millennium Falcon made on the pocket NC. So yeah, I think we're ready for X-Wing. <laughs> awesome. I got to imagine that's going to be super difficult because the wings are, gonna chatter a lot yeah it, it'll be fun but you know with anything you, if you take light cuts and you're very careful do it slow you can kind of yeah you, you can get away with that kind very of stuff. small tooling yep 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 <laughs> so yeah i just finished a part that um that was actually a problem i, I can't you know, i showed some of it but i couldn't really show it as it got close to completion um it was that watch the watch parts and i had one part that i had to access like pretty much the whole surface of the part. So I was, by the time I got down to the really small tab holding it on um, and had to finish that little part, you know, I left as much meat on it as possible until I had to get to that particular side of the, of the part that had the tab on it. And by then I was getting some pretty bad chatter. So I, I basically switched from like a 1.5 millimeter tool down to a 0.6 and ultimately ended up with a 0.4 millimeter tool. And that, the cutting pressure was so light, I actually was able to get a pretty decent finish and finish those small features. And actually, I parted off with the 0.4, which is kind of crazy. Um, that worked great, actually, because that, that was the other thing I was kind of worried is that, um, you know, as the tab gets thinner, sometimes the, the part will vibrate and run yeah. the bottom finish. So I've been experimenting with that. So definitely, I can definitely recommend if you're having a problem with a certain diameter tool when that material gets really really thin try try a really small tool it'll take you know, longer but uh you know what i've also noticed on the, the part, v250 right? is that with the higher rpm i actually am getting less chatter now like oh yeah I, I, you know it's it's almost like amazing like I, i'm actually to get into these deep pockets and instead of chattering in the corner that i normally would at 10k it just goes through it and it, it doesn't even exist like i don't have those bad chatter uh, marks anymore or i don't i don't have like that bad milling sound it just sounds super buttery as it's going through these deep corners and stuff so i don't even know if i can go back to 10k anymore i've been spoiled too much it's pretty it's pretty amazing <laughs> having all these this range yeah, of think, rpm uh, yeah you know the I, I think the higher rpm you know you, you get lower cutting pressure 
um, without a big loss in material removal rate, right? Kind of makes up for it with the higher RPM and faster feed rate. Yeah. Um, at least for smaller tooling. Um, that's the other thing. It's like you're kind of forced to use the smaller tooling with the Collet system that's on the V250. Most of the problems I've got gotten into with Chatter on the V210 is large, tools that would have been too big to fit on the NSK spindle anyway. Um, but, you know, if you go small on the V210, you run into just not having enough RPM to, to run that tool yeah. at the proper RPM. Yeah, so it's, I think now, you know, we're seeing how well those small tools can run when they run at the RPM that they're designed to run at. It makes a big difference. Yes. Um, yeah, so that was the first thing I noticed when I got my V250 is like, I can't believe that this, you know, because the first thing I did was run some parts that I'd, and run some tests that I'd run on the V210, just ran them again. And even when I looked at the video from the V210 run to the V250 run, same tool, very different speeds and feeds. It was much higher quality cutting experience. Yeah, it's it, good to know. Yeah, it was instantaneous. Like the first cut I made was 50K, 60 inches a minute, 10 thou width, full depth, and it just plowed through that 7075 and it sounded so good. Yeah. I was like, wow, I, I was in shock. So I know, um, Winston, you've been working on some machine upgrades. What have, what have you got going on? I have been doing something that I should have done months ago. So the way I do Air Blast in the Shape Boca, or the way I did it last week, or as of last week, is that I had the little uh, sort of Y slingshot shape bracket that I used for putting a Air Blast on the Nomad the first time I prototyped that out. I just literally clamped that to the spindle mount of the Shape Oko just so I could plumb air through a push-to-fit connector um, into my little flexible nozzle. And that has been an eyesore on my Shape Oko for <laughs> like the past two or three months. And it took me until I think Friday or Saturday for me to finally put my foot down and say, I'm going to make something. I'm going to buy a little NPT coupler so I can put the push-to-connect fitting on one side and the uh, flexible nozzle on the other and have a little bracket that holds that coupler. And I had a quarter-twenty hole drilled and tapped into the spindle mount of the Shape Oko, and then I bolted that bracket on, and it takes up, like, maybe 10% of the, the space that the old janky setup took, and it looks super clean, and it, like, it wouldn't block the Carbide 3D logo on the front, and I don't know why I didn't do it sooner, but I feel like, and I'm sure other people have been in this position where they have something that works good enough and they just, they can't be bothered to improve their situation. And I'm wondering if any of you are uh, guilty of that same thing. <laughs> yeah, this is the guy that still has a Delwin riser for his vice on his pocket and see that was supposed to be the prototype <laughs> for an aluminum one. And I still use it cause it works, but uh, yeah, it's not ideal. Um, yeah, I saw that. So you're and you're using line lock on the bottom, right? Uh, so, knockoff line lock. Yeah, okay. but yeah, yeah. I need to do the same thing. I need to get air blast wherever on probably all my machines here. So I'm glad that you're kind of prototyping stuff because I'll probably just uh, use that design. <laughs> I really like it. Yeah, the the way I have it is the um, the NPT coupler and the push to connect fitting between them. I basically just have like a little uh, bracket with a hole through it. And the coupler goes in one side, the threads pop out the other, and you screw down the um, coupler. And that basically just holds it together. And then you have something that you can bolt or attach to basically anything. So it doesn't take a lot to hold on to that assembly securely. Yeah, I don't know if you've posted a picture of it. I'm looking at a picture that you sent me. And uh, so that the brass part that's on the between the line lock and your 
mounting yeah, bracket. Yeah, that's the uh, NPT coupler. Yeah, so did you machine that, or is that an off-the-shelf piece? Nope, I think I got that at uh, Harbor Freight for okay. two bucks and change. Okay, yeah, yeah so it's a pretty, it looks like it's pretty easy and simple assembly. Um, did you have to machine, you had to machine the uh, spindle mount, right, to get that bolt? Yeah, I mean, bracket. you really just... The next time you tram a shape oko, just pull the whole spindle mount off, take it to the drill press, yeah. put a hole in it, tap it, or just go through hole and then put a nut from below. And then you could put basically any accessory. I thought about just making another hole in there somewhere and uh, like attaching a GoPro to the spindle mount, but um, like just that attachment, it's so much better than adhesive or clamping. It's secure. Yeah, and that's aluminum, right? So magnet wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Okay. Correct. Interesting. I'm totally guilty of this. Like my Nomad Air setup was supposed to be like a prototype thing, but it's worked so well. I just haven't been bothered to go back to kind of update it. But I do want to use like an MPT fitting instead of the way that I have it on there now because it's a little little janky. But you know, sometimes it's hard to change stuff when it works already, and you want to move on to something yeah. else. Yeah. And so you have air going on your V250. I don't have that yet. I will soon. Um, you have air going through the spindle like it's supposed to be. Um, is that enough pressure to act as air blast? Is it, it comes out of the nose, right, and blows onto the, the cutter? Yeah, it's pretty good. Like, I, I was getting ready to split my airline so that I could run it onto the pocket NC, and then I was going to make this whole bracket thing. And then I saw the air coming out. I'm like, that's a pretty healthy amount of pressure. And then when I was milling the aluminum, it was just blowing everything out of the way. Um, yeah, so, so it's... It's blowing the proper direction, right? That was the thing I had a theory about, like where it was going to exit, um, but I didn't really know. So I'm glad you were able to. Yeah, it comes around the collet and it skims over the end mill, and then I guess if it Perfect. follows uh, the end mill it spirals, it probably just starts to do a little tornado or something. Because you could see it when the table rises and it's going to probe. Like if there are chips on the table, they get blown away as the the you know spindle is going down. So there's a good amount of pressure. I mean, it's like 20, 22, 25 psi, right? That's coming out of there. So yeah. it's pretty good. Yeah, it's a pretty small opening. Yeah, so that should be pretty good. Yeah, pretty good pressure. Not it, too much pressure. It's so okay. good where I was like, okay, I don't need to spend time making something else. This is good enough for now. Yeah, my uh, my air kit comes in next week or this week. I guess this, we're recording on Sunday, um, and then I've got that little. Little compressor is probably, you know, it's like a, it's kind of a beefy aquarium, aquatic, or I guess I call it aquatic pump, right? Diaphragm pump, which will, I don't know if it'll meet the required pressure, um, but it'll be better than nothing. So I'll hook that up. The work is starting on my garage pretty soon. The contractor was out this weekend to start putting the quote together for kind of building out a shop out there. And part of that is, you know, I'll have shop air and I'll be able to bring that. Once I get the compressor hooked up and wired in, I'll be able to bring real air into my in addition to the garage i'll be able to bring a line into the house because uh, they share a common wall it's really easy to route um, that wall and bring a airline into the at least for the vt50 so i'm kind of looking forward to that being able to have regular air there and i'll probably just do like what winston was doing um, on some of the other machines here just to get a air blast going you know i can't run coolant but that's a pretty good it's better than running nothing at all on dry, right? Especially because chip evacuation is still my big problem, uh, especially on the three-axis machines. 
think air would help a lot with that, with some of the problems I've had in the past. I think everybody listening that has a CNC, whether it's a Shapoko or Nomad, whatever, you need to have air blast. Like it's, it's life changing. It just makes it better. And if you can get it in a way where it clears everything out in those deep pockets and slots and stuff, like you'll notice a big difference and it cuts a lot better. Yeah. The, on the, you know, I had the little plastic gel, weren't no, actually they're, I think they're HDPE, um, those little, they call them bit fans that, that Bantam sells for their machine. And I, they'll work on any one eighth inch tool, like just slip over the shank. So I do use them on the Nomad and I haven't needed to use it on the pocket and see just because it's horizontal, but um, those work pretty good. But I do always, I always kind of worry about, especially on the Bantam, you know, it's, is that kind of adding any run out or imbalance to the, to the rotating assembly, right? Um, I think they're, they're designed to be balanced, but over time, right? I don't know if they hold that balance and, and eventually they, they slip and they wear off, but they do a good job. Like when they're working, I mean, when they're on there, especially the new ones, um, before they get a little too loose and start slipping on the shaft, they, you'd be surprised, but they generate, um, enough, I guess, pressure to kind of keep the chips out of, um, at least like when I, for most of the material I'm working with on the Bantam machine, it's one eighth inch plate right it's pretty thin so it's not it doesn't get too deep a slot if you got the fan really close to the the stock it works as you get further out obviously it gets doesn't work as well but also it just adds another thing to kind of worry about right because you can't you can yeah. you can't plunge in all the way because now you got a fan like that's gonna rub so i i like it for certain stuff but i definitely think if you're if you go in a cnc setting up an airline is something that's worth taking the time to do you know it, it's, yeah, it's just worth it yeah, I like not having to worry if that's affecting my surface finish, you know, right. that rotate, extra rotating mass. So, um, yeah, that, it, it'd be a little challenging to plumb air on the, the Bantam, but definitely on the Nomad. You know, I think, like I said, uh, Winston's already got it, a, working, a viable solution. I think you do, too. With the, You have a hard line on yours, right? Um, have a brass or copper I, line or something I, like that. I basically took like a like a five dollar air compressor nozzle thing and i i dremeled it off and then i built this aluminum bracket that it fits into uh, and then i stuck a eighth inch tubing on top of it and, and ran it it's, it's it's a little hacky but it works yeah yeah i think yeah the having it flexible and adjustable especially on something like the shape book where we're using lots of different link tooling is is a plus yeah um yeah, that's cool. I think we, uh, Winston, you may have started a trend here. We're probably all going to explore. Well, I, I, to be fair, I think Chris, you had it going on the Nomad before any of us were doing it. Yeah, and I told else. both you guys that you need to get on this because it's super, yeah. super awesome. Marvin's been telling me the same thing. It's like uh, at least get, you know, if you can't get cool, at least get air blast. Do something. Get those chips out of there. I mean, so. I was able to cut tool steel with the air blast on the Nomad. Like that should oh, tell wow. you everything. It was P twenty. That's uh, thirty Rockwell. Yeah, yeah, that's good. One thing I might do, I don't know if that's going to become like an official accessory at Carbide 3D. Maybe I'll wait and see. Um, they're going to have a, a proper product that's you know well integrated in. I think hopefully they'll learn from what you're doing there, Winston, and get some ideas. I am applying what pressure I can, but I can't promise anything with any certain time frame. Yeah, I can see that. All right, well, you guys have anything else you want to talk about? Uh, no, I, I'm pretty happy with our conversation tonight, despite you uh, dropping out. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I missed. I'll actually get to listen to an episode and hear something for the first time when <laughs> I listen to it. I'm kind of looking forward to that. Um, okay, well, I'm sorry yeah. again. Sorry about the power problems here, and uh, I'm glad you guys were able to keep going without me. 
You know, Chris, uh, this was a fantastic day to have you on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we uh, jibber-jabbered quite a bit about a lot of stuff, so I, I'm good here as well. Yeah, glad you could join us on short notice, Chris. Yeah, Thanks for anytime, coming. man. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to say good night. As yeah. will I. Um, have a good one, yeah, fellas. Good night, everyone. Good night.